I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day and thanks for joining us on Democracy Sausage, which, as you know, comes out twice weekly from the ANU. I'm Mark Kenny. Well, Donald Trump hangs on despite the lack of any evidence of systemic vote rigging, his childish rhetoric showing no signs of abating in what surely would be an embarrassment to grown-up Americans. And, of course, the coronavirus hangs on too, wreaking havoc in the US and elsewhere. In the UK, the Johnson government is now easing restrictions despite recording staggering numbers of new infections, something like 15,000 a day recently. Johnson, quickly emerging as the least competent PM in his country's recent history, is now slave to the toxic politics of corona, replete with Tory denialism and a backbench revolt, having bungled just about every stage of his government's response. Yet here in Australia, the worst-hit state is apparently virus-free now, and there are signs the economy is also rebounding strongly, presaging an end, technically speaking anyway, to the devastating COVID recession of 2020. But there's plenty of pain to come yet, with businesses pushed to the brink, and some, perhaps many, already gone. And if the economic pain of the crisis is not already terrible, there's extra hardship from the worsening trade fight with China. And never quite for long, the Middle East is now on high alert over the assassination of Iran's top nuclear physicist, reportedly by Israeli agents. If there is an upside, it's that global progress on climate change suddenly seems just a bit more possible thanks to Trump's removal. Joining me to range across these issues and any others are a couple of excellent guests from the ANU. John Blacksland is Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies and the former head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the ANU. He's one of Australia's foremost experts on war and security and intelligence matters. And, and John, I imagine you're rather bemused, like many of us, that uh, Australia is taking flak from Russia now in terms of the uh, response over the, uh, 
the Afghan war crimes investigation that we've had going on the Brereton report. Uh, Russia's now saying that Australia's got uh, big questions to answer. It seems a bit rich, doesn't it? Yes, I think it's the pot calling the kettle black, uh, to be honest. But it's it would be funny if it wasn't tragicomic. Uh, Russia's track record is outrageously bad. Um, its actions in Syria in support of the Assad regime, its actions in Nagorno-Karabakh and elsewhere is, you know... Uh, let alone uh, with the Skripal poisoning and various other yeah. nefarious deeds around the world. Or shooting uh, down an airliner which had... Shooting uh, down the airliner, yeah. exactly. Uh, many Australians on board as well as many others. Uh, continuing to deny its role in that, uh, even though we now pretty much gather that that wasn't a deliberate shooting down of a civilian air- airliner. It was definitely a deliberate shooting down of an aircraft. Hmm. Um, and uh, the denial of that uh, speaks to a... Uh, an arrogant sense of being above accountability and reproach, uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's extraordinary, um, on one level that they would feel that that's their role, but it does speak to a closeness emerging between, uh, the CCP, uh, the, the Xi's government and Putin's government. Yeah, that's an interesting development in itself, isn't it? Because they've historically had a fractious relationship uh, over a long period. Um, and so it's a kind of a, a worry in that sense. I mean, the other aspect, of course, and you mentioned Syria, but of course, the Russians have a pretty, uh, pretty dark and uh, nefarious history with Afghanistan as well. I mean, given that we're talking about Afghanistan mm. in, in, in this regard, the SAS behavior, mm. um, the Russians record in Afghanistan is Pretty horrendous as well. Indeed. Yeah, the track record there. I mean, no one comes out looking glorious in Afghanistan, unfortunately. No, no that's definitely uh, There's true. a long litany of disastrous and, uh, you know, incredible uh, poor performance by great powers uh, across the globe in, in Afghanistan. And I don't think that saga is going to end, even if the Americans do end up leaving sooner than later. Yeah, there was a book a few years ago, few years ago several years ago now, called The Great Game, I think it was. And, yeah, uh, it, which is a powerful book, yeah, yeah. about particularly the ni- late 19th century uh, British-Russian uh, contest over the, the twilight zone between the Russian and British empires on the edge of what was then India, India now India and Pakistan, and that space where Afga- Afghanistan sits just beyond the reach of complete central control from either mm. uh, Delhi or Moscow, uh, and Delhi being back then part of the British Empire. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's been an ebb and flow of great power contestation uh, as part of that great game on and off ever since. Yeah, that's right. And it's just seen, been the ruin of uh, even quite technologically advanced and wealthy nations that have had aspirations for control and they just haven't. They've exactly just failed right. them. It ended yeah. in, in massive suffering and ignominy. An enormous hubris, incredible uh, uh, hubris on the part of great powers who've, who who uh, with an unwillingness to learn from history, have arrogantly trod in the paths of others that have preceded them without stopping to learn the lessons of their experience. Yeah, and the Russians and the Russians are now reportedly taking more of a, like a renewed interest in Afghanistan. As is well. China. Yeah. Mm. Also with us is Dr. Siobhan McDonald. She is a senior lecturer in the Crawford School of Public Policy. She's a lawyer and an expert anthropologist. 
and she's played a pivotal role in a whole range of things like climate change investigations, for, uh, negotiations, I should say, for uh, for countries in this region and uh, and in um, native title in Australia, as I understand it. Siobhan, welcome back to Democracy Sausage. Thank you so much. Really great to have you here. I noticed that I made a reference before about um, climate change, uh, the atmospherics of it, if I could put yeah. it in that slightly unintentionally punish way. Do you feel a bit more optimistic now that we've seen the change in the in the US administration, the very strong sort of intentions of the incoming Biden administration, the appointment of John Kerry as a global climate envoy for uh, for President elect Biden? It, it does rather change the global atmospherics, doesn't it, about what is a very global problem. Yeah, I mean there's a there's a real politic to all of this. There's a, a pragmatics to the negotiations when you're in the room, um, which is that uh, it's about who moves in what direction. And in the room in Madrid, the US obviously was a, a non-starter. Um, Europe was not doing much as a group. The UK was signalling pretty ineffectually. And as a result, we had came out with not much, really. I should say that I went, um, I had the honour of representing the Republic of, of Vanuatu in those negotiations. But this is really pivotally important in terms of thinking around um, the direction we're heading in as we progress towards Glasgow. So Glasgow is the point in time where we revisit the Paris targets. So um, in Paris, all of, of the parties to the to the agreement signed up to nationally determined contributions. The idea These was These are that, the so-called 2030 targets. Yes, and the idea was that they would be ratcheted up and that that process will now happen at Glasgow. So the UK is really strongly signalling its commitment. A whole range of countries are falling behind. What is pivotally important at this point in time is the Biden administration and how they sit. And what they need to do, and this is where John Kerry provides an incredibly important role, is they need to um, develop an approach that speaks to a domestic commitment, so a similar kind of set of issues that we have in Australia, but also internationally. John Kerry has historically had um, a very important role to play in terms of brokering partnerships. So the position that he has been given is one um, that has a forward-facing security framing, so he's a member of Cabinet He's really been given a top-level cabinet role. That means he will now, um, one of his, the first things that he'll do is go to China and begin to try and work that partnership. So this is incredibly significant because the two largest emitting countries in the world are China and the US. So, you know, in terms of the climate science, in terms of those of us who are incredibly troubled about the direction that we're going in, um, we know that we've already hit one degree of global warming, possibly already 1.2 degree of global warming. Uh, the idea is not to hit 1.5 because then you start actually hitting planetary boundaries from which we cannot return. So the time is now. It's absolutely immediate and it's absolutely critical. John, going to the, the point Siobhan makes about Kerry going to China, if, if that's what he does do, uh, it seems like a bit of a pipe dream for Australia at the moment to be going to China and actually achieving anything given that negotiations or, or rela the relationship seems to be so broken down and we can come to that a bit later. But mm. do you, uh, how do you view the possibilities there? I guess this isn't just a question about climate change. This is a question about reframing of the US-China relationship. 
do you think there is um, potential for that relationship to improve? In some ways, it was defined by the kind of personal relationship between Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, and at its best, that had some positives to it, I suppose, um, because there's there's bipartisan hostility in Washington to to China in, in, in or at least China's intentions and some of its behavior there's a there's a willingness on both sides of the aisle as they say in the US uh, to uh, to toughen up on China but at the same time the US is going to be looking for um, for cooperation here and looking mm. to show leadership what do you think the chances are of that relationship becoming more productive uh, I think the chances are as good as they've been in several years but that isn't starting from a very high base. Um, the Biden administration will face a very different set of dynamics to the ones that Obama faced, I believe, uh, because the United States is now uh, in a much more hostile mood towards China than it was four years ago. That's been reinforced by uh, Trump's uh, posturing, by China's actions and by in, internationally South China Sea, uh, the much more uh, clear track record of cyber attacks, cyber interference, political interference. Uh, and coronavirus. And, well, that's the big one I was coming to. The right. big one is the coronavirus, the fact that China has essentially been hiding its role, it's been denying that it's played a critical role in the early days and has not been prepared to be transparent about what happened and what we can do about it. And, but to make matters worse, from a US president's point of view, he seemed, China's G seems to have come out of this with a, a, an economy that is relatively considerably stronger. And that is galling to uh, to the United States it's and, and it's gr- hugely challenging in terms of the great power contestational dynamics that are continuing to shift so while John Kerry uh, I wish him the very best and we can only hope that he is successful in negotiating something effective with China because as Siobhan points out the two biggest emitters are the ones who need to we need to be looking to influence things. Um, my concern is that um, on both sides, they will be uh, playing more with smoke and mirrors than with substance um, because China has, in my view, been very effective at playing the rhetoric uh, and not necessarily playing the substance on environmental change, uh, changing policies and uh, projecting things out intergenerationally when they know that they're essentially pie-in-the-sky propositions and they're still doubling down on coal production and nuclear weapons and nuclear energy uh, consumption. So those dynamics are going to make it very, very hard for John Kerry to achieve something. But at the same time, uh, President Xi and the Chinese government, they want a circuit breaker too. Um, My concern out of all of this is whether we in Australia are – collateral damage in that equation. Uh, we need to be very, very careful about how we play our cards from here on in. Well, that's a really interesting point, Siobhan, isn't it, The where Australia fits in? Because we've been, in, in the last few years, uh, the uh, since the overlap of the uh, Trump administration and this coalition government we have in Australia, there's been uh, 
a willingness to kind of, in a sense, hide in the shadow behind the US a bit on the on the question of a, a net zero by 2050 target, for example, on how muscular we're going to be. Have we just lost our protection? Are we just standing out there now, out in the driveway, kicking gravel around with Saudi Arabia while others are going to be in the conference uh, making decisions? Yeah, I think Australia is looking increasingly exposed. Um, we know that Boris Johnson called Scott Morrison last week and asked him to shift his position we know uh, the previous Obama administration spoke very strongly towards the Australian Prime Minister about these particular issues. Uh, we know that this is increasingly becoming a fixed part of the international compa- compact. We know that Morrison recently has started to talk about not using Kyoto carryover credits, which is um, which is quite a significant concession and something that was. Um, so distasteful um, and seen as not within the spirit and compact of the agreement internationally. So, so Australia's already sorry to interrupt, but Australia's already viewed with a fair amount of suspicion anyway. Australia, and then we're looking to because we've negotiated a pretty soft deal in Kyoto to begin with, outrageously soft, extremely soft, and our Paris commitment is also very soft. Mm. Um, so. You know, in terms of our Paris commitment, it would mean that Australia would, you know, we're contributing to a world in which there's about 3% global warming. So far in excess of where climate science predicts is anything like safe and habitable future global world. Um, so look, Australia is already seen very much as an international outlier, um, pariah. And now we are increasingly isolated with countries like Brazil and Saudi Arabia. So um, it's really, I think it's genuinely untenable as a position. But I also acknowledge that domestically these are extremely difficult and we can see that across the domestic spectrum. We can see that in Labor politics in the same way that we can see it in the coalition there is a real need for a just transition debate to happen in Australia in a very engaged way that perhaps hasn't happened in Australian politics to date. Yes, and by a just transition, I take it you mean we need to recognise that there are losers arising from a fairly rapid change, change in structure of the economy, a greening of the economy, moving to more renewables, taking fossil fuels yep. out, uh, lowering our emissions quite dramatically in a relatively short space of time. There are going to be people, particularly in the coal and energy production sector, who uh, sectors who are going to be victims of that change. Uh, I've written about this myself recently, um, and who need to be accommodated because of that. It, need, it needs to be recognised, doesn't it? And uh, it's interesting that um, there. I think there is. You know, certainly, I've spoken to a few people around writing that piece that uh, on, on the labour side, and a couple since who've contacted me about it. Um, and it's interesting that there is a, a growing recognition that if, unless you actually have a way of compensating these people, of accommodating their disadvantage and doing it up front, uh, then you are going to have a major political problem. And we know Joel Fitzgibbon recently quit mm. the front bench. He's, you know, prosecuting this argument. Mm. It's a lie, of course, and we've made this point on this podcast before. It's basically a lie to tell coal industry workers that they've got an indefinite future because they don't. So the more responsible thing to be saying is this is where we think the economy needs to go. This is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to pay for it. This is a national restructuring and yeah. therefore you won't be individually asked to carry the cost. 
And when are we going to be mature enough to have that conversation, right? So increasingly what we're seeing is that the states are progressively having a conversation that at a national level we seem to be incapable of having, right? Well, is Morrison going to be saved by the states? I mean, we saw New South Wales sign, uh, legislate a quite progressive package in the, just in the last eight days, I think, last week, in fact. With huge energy transition implications. Yeah. So we've got movements in New South Wales. We've got movements in Victoria. We have existing movements in South Australia. We have big movements from corporate Australia, where companies we, like Woolworths going uh, carbon neutral by, what, 2035 or something? We've got the banks lining up in particular directions to some degree. We've got, um, you know, we've got the top end of corporate Australia who have already done risk analysis and have pulled a lot of their investments out of anything. They do this incredible work in that future financing work where they actually project risks out into the future and pull out anything that looks like it's a projected liability from a whole range of different sectors. So when Malcolm Turnbull speaks, he speaks with the authority of that high finance kind of sector and the way in which they project the future, the global future of what's happening, of the way we're progressing. In the future, there will be certain, there will be certain sectors that will be uninsurable. Mm. There will be certain forms of housing that will be uninsurable, right? So this is the direction that we're heading in increasingly. It is, it is absolutely the direction we're heading in. The climate science is simply uncontestable. So the question is, how do we get there? Mm. And this is what is absent from that kind of national debate at the moment. It's just, John, hasn't it been just like an extraordinary period of, of the politics being so toxic that policy has just played second fiddle all the time? It's always hopelessly compromised. Um, rational policy ideas just are incapable of being assessed or progressed in any way because they fall on either one side or other of a sort of a toxic divide on this question. And we see that divide within the parties as well as across the, uh, the, 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 the two parties. Yeah, so that comes to the core of the issue I was trying to grapple with, with the geostrategic SWOT analysis for Australia I wrote last year. Um, essentially, we have a political system caught up with the tyranny of the urgent. Um, and no one seems to be able to rise above the short-term political cycle of the 24-hour news cycle, let alone the three-year political cycle, to think generationally and intergenerationally about where we need to be, how we need to position Australia for the sake of our grandkids. Um, so this is you know, one of the weaknesses of our the, our democratic practice at the moment is that it just struggles to rise above uh, that kind of narcissistic local issue focus about holding on to power uh, and grappling with pushback in local electorates to issues that really need to be recast as a as in a completely different light. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've been arguing that we need a National Institute for Net Assessment. And what I mean by that is a body that looks holistically at what the, where the country's at, where we want to be, and how we get there. To, so we have a, a serious look at, you know, we talk about in, 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 strat, in the Strategic and Defence Study Centre, we talk about strategy in, in a very simplified sense that's ends, ways, and means. Well, we think we, we, we haven't had that conversation as a nation about where do we want to be in 50 years and what are the resources we've got to do that and how can we get there. That, that's just, 
there's a gaping chasm of that conversation representing that absence. Um, so we need to do that. And, and Siobhan's points are, are, are really good. Um, and the, the, they're, they're butting up against the, the reality of that short term, fairly toxic political process. Um, that, um, that we, we've seen unfold in, in, in politics, you know, pretty much for the last decade and a half, uh, just, tripping over ourselves, almost getting there with policy that one side of politics or a third party play thinks it's not good enough or, you know, seeks, thinks they can eke out another compromise and then it topples over. Uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we're in that position. You know, here we are, uh, late 2020, we've had a national cabinet that at back in March and April seem to augur in a new era of collegiality and of visionary engagement on issues. And yet we haven't, it appears, been able to rise above that and kind of make that into an institutional mechanism for visionary change. Uh, we've been caught up with politics, the local politics, the state-based issues, the federal-state tussles, you know, out he-manning each other, you know, trying to mm. show each mm. other who's got the, the, the strongest views. Point. Imagine if National Cabinet had picked energy solutions to focus on post-COVID and we'd actually got <laughs> mm. some kind of energy strategy out of a national cabinet. And all but the investment that's the we've point. Well, We can't do that mm. because it's so, it's so, everything's yeah. so politicised. So so anyone who suggested that, the very act of suggesting it is mm. a political act in Australia's and uh, yet, political culture. At the and moment. yet we're putting ourselves into hock in, you know, I don't know how many billions it is now we're up to. I'm, I just, it's hard to keep track, but we're spending a lot. 600, I think. Okay. We're spending a lot. Where's the plan? You know, this just seems to be scattergun. Uh, th it doesn't seem to be a really coherent plan. Well, this to, is that, that sort of mismatch between the, the, the obvious or relatively easily seen longer term interests mm. of the country and the short term electoral cycle. It's always yep. been too easy to tell people what they are proposing means your electricity bill is going to go up, stick with us, and people then vote with their hip pocket. I mean, we can't, we can't relieve the Australian voters of some um, level of, uh, you know, some role here in yep. this. I mean, people have responded to these levels of popular. Look at Tony Abbott's uh, win in 2013. It was a relentless attack on the carbon price mm. as if it was the, mm. you know, the devil incarnate. Mm. It was, um, you know, the wrecking ball on the economy, the Python mm. squeeze, all that sort of rhetoric that, that in the end, people voted for that. They mm. voted to get rid of the carbon tax. And we now know, we can look at the numbers. It was the period during which uh, the, the Australia's emissions started to reduce. So, uh, or at least, um, yeah, they did. And so it's a, um, yeah, it's an extraordinary failure. Let's just take a uh, quick break and come back and continue this discussion. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. 
Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. We were talking about climate change as a you know, diabolical political problem. I wonder what you both think about the idea of, um, and I'm not sure who suggested this, it might have been uh, your colleague Siobhan at the, um, at the Crawford School, um, John Hewson, uh, from memory, although it might have been someone else, uh, the idea of having the uh, emissions reduction target set by a statutory body a bit in the same way that the Reserve Bank sets the interest rate, the cash, the official cash rate, take it right out of politics. Have a a body that's set up that looks at all of the, um, uh, you know, all of the indicators, all of the economic implications, all of the environmental implications, weighs it all up. It has some guidelines, of course, like the Reserve Bank has to um, keep the inflation rate between two and three percent. It would have to have guidelines, but its goal would be to achieve a particular, let's call it a 2050 outcome, for example. What do you think of that idea? I think it would be wonderful to have a deeply scientific approach to some of these issues. We know that putting in place um, a trading scheme um, is an effective solution. We know that this is the kind of approach that allows for a market mechanism that can allow adjustments to be made in an efficient and effective way. Um I think what's interesting is, and a lot of people have, have made this comparison is that one of the, one of the things that the government really needs to take credit for is the incredibly exceptional way in which Australia has responded to COVID. And a lot of that involved listening to the science. Mm. Yes, really. it did. Yes. So there's a really interesting point of contrast there. Right? We're prepared to listen to the science. We're prepared to understand the importance of epidemiology. We're prepared to take on board the importance, even if there's this incredible economic cost, even if it means transforming the ways in which we think about our lives, even if it costs jobs, right? Mm. And it has cost jobs and it has come at a desperate economic cost. And yet, why are we not applying a similar rationale to what is really an even more, some would say, an even more um, pressing issue. Is that, John, in your view, uh, simply human psychology? One of these processes is a long-run thing, and in that sense it's abstract, it's global, and it's down the track, a long way down the track, and its, and its implications are gradual. The other is a here-and-now existential health threat, we know that most climate change deniers rush to the doctor at the first chance of uh, a first sign of any sort of illness, and if they are unlucky enough to be diagnosed with cancer, they will take all the all the uh, chemotherapy and other therapies that are that that science has developed for treating that. So they've always been hypocrites on this question, in my view. But uh, is it is it just human psychology? We can a bit like a bit like why do we smoke when we're younger? Because because it'll only be a problem so so long uh, later yeah. on in our lives. It is a, a strange irony, isn't it, that we have responded so well to uh, government edicts, science-based edicts on prevention of the pandemic and containment of the pandemic, and yet we've allowed the rhetoric 
of denial to resonate. And I think it's because there's been uh, political expedience um, and there's no doubt some people just don't believe it. You know, there is there is quite a buy-in. Just don't believe climate change, I mean. Yeah. yeah oh, there, 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 uh, creating doubt around it has been a critical aspect, hasn't it? To, yeah. to, to, to at least have some sort of doubt or debate going on that allows people who don't want to confront it to be able to cite, you know, Terry Con- McCran or someone yeah. that read. Uh, and, and, and those, uh, the naysayers are resonating in a way that is surprising um, and uh, it's feeding off. You know, there's, we're, we're in a bit of a, a, a weird space at the moment because of our media, uh, being, uh, affected by strong anti-climate change views, particularly mm-hmm. in, you know, in, in, let's be frank, it's particularly in the Murdoch press, but not just in the Murdoch press. Um, and that is a very influential body in Australia. Um, and that is, that's resonating in, large chunks of Australia, uh, you know, and and the counter message is not being sufficiently well articulated or conveyed or marketed. Uh, and that speaks and that, that that's then re- self-reinforcing because then that plays to a political base and it plays to a message about, well, what's going to work best for, you know, maintenance of power and this is exactly what Joel Fitzgibbon's butting up against in the in the mm-hmm. in the Hunter Valley mm-hmm. um, and we bec- and I get back to my point earlier you know we're, we're not thinking in a visionary way about mm-hmm. where we're going to be intergenerationally we're just getting caught up with the here and now and but that's look- how you get elected I mean that's what Fitzgibbon's actually in a way he's, he's guilty of this himself he's he's um he's saying we need to look after these workers mm. well that's understandable I mean they are as he notes, they are in many ways the sort of foundation of the Labor Party, industrial blue-collar workers. Um, it's an understandable argument to that extent. But he's not making the counter-argument, which is that, um, you know, what happened yesterday in New South Wales and uh, northern New South Wales, the hottest day in November in... on Yeah, it recorded. It yeah. recorded. And uh, instantly there's bushfires lapping at uh, some right. of the outer suburbs. And the bushfires, I mean... The, the wind yesterday was insane. You know, so it's, yeah. it's really interesting to me that we see climate change as a long, you know, a, a slow-burning existential crisis. And I understand that framing, and yet our experience is so palpable, hmm. you know. in We began this year with these horrific and devastating fires, and we began this year through a lot of that, those southeastern coast of not being able to breathe for extended periods of time yeah, as Canberra well as was horrendous. But isn't it or hasn't isn't the weakness in that argument or at least the vulnerability of that argument that people will always say, Oh well I remember the Great Flood of nineteen fifty five or the bushfires of nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, yeah or, or nineteen eighty three or whatever. Yeah. And I remember the heat wave when, you know, uh in, in the nineteen so sixties yeah, or I whatever mean, it is. I mean and so it's it becomes it's not actually feasible to link a single weather event as they now describe it with mm. with no, climate change but it is but certainly the climate the science is so clear i mean mm. the climate science i mean we have fabulous data out of even the bureau of meteorology that they publish every year mm. that people can access with a click but you know i inhabit this space all the time i can tell you and what is absolutely terrifying is that if you look at sea level rise the way i do in the pacific the modeling has changed dramatically even between 
uh, a couple of years ago and now because what is happening is the Arctic and the Antarctic are melting much faster than anyone ever predicted. And we mm. have some of these modelers based at ANU. So the, the rapid transformation of the climate systems across the globe are happening at much faster rates than anyone anticipated. This is starting to spin at a level that we had not imagined. And the trouble with that is that once it becomes so unambiguous that not even, you know, your sort of enthusiastic deniers can deny it any longer, is it's gone well past the point where much more, you know, serious action needed to be taken it's because just- these people are clinging on endlessly and we've yeah. got a government that yeah. is dragging the chain. John, what about the sort of security aspect? Because I noticed yeah. um, there's, you mentioned the Murdoch press a minute ago. There's a faint air of panic in some of the commentary I've seen mm. uh, around this changing atmospheric of uh, the Biden administration, John Kerry. There was talk about you know the, the climate advisor that Australia doesn't need. Well, it might actually mm. be the climate advisor Australia does need, actually, mm. a bit of mm. external pressure because um, – you know, someone's someone's got to uh, sort of get Australia to stop dragging the chain. But I wonder, one of the criticisms that was in that piece that I read the other day was mm. that Tony Abbott had dealt with uh, John Kerry back in 2014 when he was Secretary of State under Obama, uh, that is, uh, John Kerry. And um, uh, the criticism that Abbott made was that John Kerry, even discussing security issues, seemed to only want to talk about climate change. Mm you know, as if this was a thing. But it is increasingly a security concern. Yeah. So uh, going back to my SWOT analysis, one of the things I, I point out in that is that I put a Venn diagram. My distillation of the so what from the SWOT analysis is that we've got overlapping uh, concerns that are about looming environmental catastrophe, but we've also got great power contestation. And those two things is actually leaping in with a third one, which is a spectrum of governance challenges, ranging from terrorism, uh, people smuggling, drug smuggling, breakdown, breakdowns in law and order, uh, uh, illegal fishing, and uh, a lot of brown paper bags being shifted around the place, really undermining our system of governance in Australia, in the Pacific, in Southeast Asia. So the overlap of those three components, the Venn diagram is developing a dark space that is actually not just about environmental catastrophe. It's not just about great power contestation and it's not just about terrorism or law and order. It's actually the mix. And that is, that is, that is a very toxic mm. mix. Uh, and so what we're facing is, and, and, you know, Siobhan's got expertise in, in environmental sciences and environmental issues. Uh, I, I come to it as a, you know, with a hard power perspective, but trying to be open minded about all of the spectrum of issues. And what I'm seeing is that we actually need to really reimagine how we respond. Um, and my sense is that we have to grapple with the political reality. And that is that there is a big chunk of the Australian community that doesn't buy it. Um, but what they do buy is something else. So they buy terrorism or they buy great power contestation. Um, and this is why I think one of the th- things I've proposed is a grand compact for the Pacific. Um, and uh, people say, oh, John, you've got to focus on the environment. And I'm saying, look, I'm trying to skin this cat here. Uh, and if, you, if that's all you focus on, you're not going to get it over the line. 
Um, and, and let's face it, they face more than just environmental challenges. They face they face considerable pressure from great power contestation. Mm-hmm. And all of those governance challenges are, are palpable in the Pacific and in Southeast Asia, but particularly in the Pacific. So I think we as a nation, what we need to be mindful of that. And if you know, for the people who who do see environment as the biggest issue, need to be more. If you want to see it being successfully prosecuted, you need to factor in how other parts of the political spectrum view this issue and work to come up with a consensus that is going to actually achieve realistic goals. And that's why I think that's why I think the Grand Compact for the Pacific is important, you know, where we offer a deal to particularly the micro states of the Pacific to um, a bit like New Zealand's offered with Tonga and has with Tonga uh, with the Nui and the Cook Islands, sorry. Um, and, and the United States has with some of the, uh, the islands in the north northern northern hemisphere. Um, but I guess the issue is that not, non, not one of those three domains uh, is is if you focus on them, you won't you're not going to succeed. That's my sense. So uh, you are going to butt up against in, enormous institutional barriers if you only focus on environmental issues. Um, but we we do face enormous pressures, and we're seeing it with trade at the moment. With the barriers with coal being held up, and it's interesting that it's coal um, that's being held up off the ports of China at the moment. Because well, it's, it's not just coal, is it? I mean, coal is being held up, as you say, the 60 ships or something sitting mm. off uh, Chinese ports. But yeah. uh, we've got now problems with wine that have just been announced oh, yeah. and the whole rain, barley and, and uh, so I a think, number of other things. I think we're facing a moment that the echoes – uh, Britain's uh, move into the European Economic Community in 1973, when we and New Zealand had to make a sig- you know it was a real it was an inflection point for us in terms of our trade priorities. We lost enormous markets in the, with Britain because they basically cut us off. Mm. Um, we remember. We remember. <laughs> uh, but essentially, you know, they had to do it for very pragmatic reasons. Uh, Charles de Gaulle was refusing to let Britain in unless they cut off the empire. Uh, and that was he was being extremely hard-nosed with Britain about that. And they felt back then that they had no option. Uh, so I mean, you got to you got to make your bed in your line. That's real politic. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So we can't hold it against them, but today we need to be mindful of what our options are, and this is where I think you know one of the things that I'm very happy to to uh, to be supportive of is our engagement in the Pacific and our engagement in Southeast Asia. I really think we've undercooked our relationships in the Pacific and in Southeast Asia, and in part because you know I like to think it, I. Australians are, I contend, are barely monolingual. You know, we're not very, <laughs> we're not very good inter, internationally across cultures. We like to gravitate towards the other English speaking nations. And if it's not that, then it's a big target like China where it's pretty straightforward. You get an interpreter to help you. The, the world's getting more complicated and we've, we've kind of skipped over Southeast Asia and South Asia and other markets because they've been hard. Mm. They've been, now, but we've got IHEPA, the Indonesia Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. We've got, uh, Australia New Zealand free, uh, ASEAN Free Trade Agreement. We've got RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Pr- uh, Partnership. We're part of all of these. These are mechanisms that we now as a nation need to double down on in terms of compensating for what looks like to be a fairly long set shift from China. But there's another side to it. It's very interesting because China's playing hardball here, but the whole world is watching. 
everybody is seeing that China is actually being pretty adversarial here. And this is a very sobering note for all of us around the world to note that if you put too many eggs in the China basket, chances are they will look to manipulate you. Uh, and Australia is facing that. Now, we happen to be a, one of the most prosperous nations in the world. And like in 1973, my sense is we can take this hit and maintain our dignity. Uh, and I think it's also very important that we not compromise on some of the things that China is asking of us. We would never be allowed to ask of China what they are asking of us. And I think that needs to be put to them. Uh, and and I think, you know, the world is watching to see how Australia responds. I think Australia needs to play with a very, very straight bat, very carefully and deftly. Now, I know we've, we've kind of played things ham-fistedly over, over the last little while. We, we have. I mean, let's be frank about yeah. it. We have uh, rather invited some of these reactions, yep. not necessarily because we did the wrong thing, but because we framed it in the wrong way. Uh, we can't undo that. No. We, we are where we are. We aren't where we were. Uh, and and the, you know, there's that great line, you know, oh, if that's where you wanted to go, I wouldn't start from here, mm. but we have to. We're here mm. uh, and we have to manage where we are and manage our interests as well as our ideals. Uh, so realism and idealism has to – we have to – the yin and yang, if you like, of international relations, we have to hold that in balance somehow um, and we have to chart a path forward which is going to look after Australian uh, in industry and uh, farmers and uh, various pr products and also reposition ourselves. It's very interesting that this is happening to coal, you know. Uh, this hopefully will be a sobering moment for us to think about, well, you know, we are a land of an enormous amount of sunshine, uh, enormous amount of sunshine, you know, and I think there is, there is some repositioning of us as a nation as we think about, because, you know, a generation ago, it wasn't coal or iron or it was, it was wool. It took a couple of generations ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, we, we actually have shifted. We can shift again. Um, and there are many other people in the world watching closely at what we do and how we respond. But I'd make another point also that when China stops buying our coal, it buys from someone else. And if it does so, then the market that they were already selling to is probably freeing up. So this is a very – there is – it's quite dynamic space in the international trading system. Um, so this is not a, a, a one or a zero. It's not on or it's off. This is always – there are ebbs and flows. There's fluctuations. There are changes. and It shifts from year to year. It's probably going to shift quite dramatically, uh, I think, over the next little while. And this is uh, probably – uh, in some respects, uh, a healthy wake-up call for us as a nation about the geostrategy, about the environmental impact of our choices, and about the governance choices we make as well. Yeah, it's an interesting point, uh, particularly in terms of the Pacific. Uh, what What do you think, Siobhan, in terms of the uh, how Australia is seen in the Pacific and how China is seen? They are seen in some ways to be two of the you know the bigger players. Um, We've tried to show a degree of leadership. We're very aware of China's foray into a number of these Pacific Island nations offering cheap loans and, and the like. We know at recent Pacific Islands forums the issue of climate change has been absolutely preeminent as an issue. It's existential sort of issue mm -hmm. for a number of these low-lying nations. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, uh, is there 
potential for Australia to shift here and to show leadership on this question and thus to do representation for smaller states that don't have as much sway in the world as we do? Well, we've talked about how Australia increasingly is looking at an as an outlier mm -hmm. in the international context. We're looking at how um, we've discussed how um, domestically the national government's increasingly looking like it's removed from what the states are doing. And I think um, what we haven't discussed yet is the real regional cost of Australia not moving on some of these issues. So for a long time, as the Australian government has put forward what is quite a complicated diplomatic position, which is quite generous funding of climate ad adaptation and mitigation programming mm. um, at a local level through Pacific Island countries, but absolute recalcitrance um, around some crucial climate commitments uh, at at regional kind of levels around political compacts. That really came to a head uh, in Tuvalu at the Pacific Islands Forum last year. Mm. I was there again uh, negotiating on behalf of Vanuatu, uh, so in the Pacific Island block against Australia and New Zealand. And what we came out with was the Kainaki 2 declaration. So that was negotiated for six weeks uh, as part of the negotiation team Scott Morrison flew in with his advisors, one of whom is a former Minerals Council of Australia uh, representative, and and looked at the agreement and was unhappy. So uh, he then came and had six hours of trying to work that through the leaders' debate uh, in the in Funavuti, and that was a very Tense meeting of leaders at that point in time. Um, the Kainaki 2 declaration is still some of the highest commitments that the Australian government has ever signed up to in terms of climate, regional climate compacts. And I think what happens is that um, when you're located on Tuvalu, you're on a coral atoll, parts of that atoll are literally one metre above mm. sea level. The optic of that meeting was that it was a community hall. The leaders were placed in the middle of the meeting area with windows on each side that overlooked the ocean. The ocean was literally lapping on either side of the meeting room. And the president of Tonga cried, you know. I mean, there are whole... This is the meeting where when world leaders arrived, well, for example, Scott Morrison arrived, there were um, some of the kids there the group, and were sitting in water. They were waist deep in water. <laughs> So there was There's a sort of a gesture to waist deep in water with a scene of disaster that had been created behind them and a plaque that read, we call on you, the leaders of the Pacific, to secure our future. Hmm. So the whole optic, you know, across, you know, across Vinavuti were these signs that said there is no planet B hmm. everywhere you went, really. Um, and every night this incredible gathering of Tuvalu custom celebration of dance performance that was going on and this, you know, this perpetual question in the back of your mind of, well, what happens? What mm. happens in the future? Mm. So the Pacific came and they met and Morrison had to front up to them and, you know, I won't go into the detail of what happened, although a lot of it came out in various ways in the media, but it was not a great show of Australian diplomacy. Do you think there's any potential for that to change? I mean, I know that's asking you to be 
sort of optimistic and I'm guilty of this kind of optimism from time to time uh, and mostly have <laughs> regretted it. Um, but, uh, you know, given what we were discussing at the start of this, of this recording, the, uh, change into the, you know, of the Biden administration and the changing atmospherics, the fact that Morrison is now not talking about using carryover credits, the fact that he's saying, well, we think we can get to, we'd like to get to net zero before 2050 and we think we'll certainly do it, you know, in the, this, I mean, it, they're obvious, he's obviously going to be very reluctant to back down from his statement that we're not going to have a 2050 target. But I think the question is, and John would probably frame it similarly and differently to me, is how long can Australia afford not to change? Mm. So China is moving into the Pacific in an increasingly, um, with increasing overtures. Mm. One of the things about Chinese development diplomacy is there's very little strings mm. attached to it. So if you're a politician in a Pacific Island country and you want something funded, it's much easier to get it funded by China. Particularly if China sees it as a sort of a contest with Australia and we've, our relationship has become. And is interested so in creating a strategic partnership with you as a Pacific Island leader. Hmm. Australia, Australia's spend is larger. Australia is still often the partner of choice. Mm. Australia has a long history of funding some extraordinary long development partnerships around schooling, around hospitals, around roads and infrastructure, these long-term development pathways, and yet they need to signal directions towards the future. And this is a critical issue, not just for Atoll Nations, but for all nations in the Pacific, as weather patterns change, across Melanesia, people are still subsistence farmers, mm. and they're finding it increasingly hard to grow crops with changing weather patterns. So you're looking at food security issues mm. for 9 million people. I mean, these are issues that are on Australia's border. They are coming. So mm. what is what is our future solution for this? I mean... And I want to say in relation to John's kind of, you know, where's our 2050 plan, if it doesn't sound too indulgent, universities have got to be part of that plan, right? Mm. There's a short-termism about the way this politics is framed that is just really depressing. <laughs> it's depressing in terms of policy agendas, but it's depressing. And I, I don't think that punters are that stupid. You know, I actually think I have more faith in, in, in people than that. I actually think people want different options for their kids and I think they do want different solutions being presented. Yes, well, I hope that you are right. I think you are right, but it is um, sometimes it can be difficult to tell. As we've seen through, um, well, as we saw, 70 million people still wanted Donald Trump as the president after all of the abuses and outrage that his presidency represented. So, uh, you know, one one always needs to temper one's uh, enthusiasm for the judgment of the mob. Uh, to some extent. Look, just in the time we've got left, I, I want to quickly turn to um, the, uh, the, the situation in uh, in the Middle East, particularly I mentioned in the introduction about the, um, obviously that we, we're all glad that Kylie Moore Gilbert has been brought mm. home mm. from Iran. Within a couple of days of that, we see the assassination of this um uh, this uh, top nuclear physicist, yeah. uh, which Iran is saying is, is is an act of Israeli intelligence. Any thoughts on are these things linked? These two events, for a start, uh, and uh, w what are your thoughts on on Australia's role? Have, have we have we seen, for example, 
an, a rather unfortunate exercise, successful exercise in hostage diplomacy from Iran? Have we played into that? Uh, yeah. And and were you surprised to read that a number of a significant part of Australia's diplomatic effort was in fact conducted by senior intelligence officials? Yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, you know, the, the, the Middle East has had um, this incredible pull on Australian diplomacy and foreign engagement. Um, we've been going there since before Federation. Uh, 1885, we first sent a contingent to Sudan, which isn't the Middle East. It's in Africa, but it's not just on the edges of mm. the Middle East, Middle East, North Africa strip. Um, the dynamics uh, in Iran, in the Middle East, are ones that we Australians, are, you know, we're really, it's not our principal focus and it's not our principal area of expertise, but we do have very, very good people in that space. But I think we need to place the context of what's happening in Iran in a broader context in terms of the great Sunni-Shia tussle between Saudi Arabia and Iran and America's role in that space. And, of course, what's happening with the Biden administration coming in uh, following in four years of the Trump love-in with uh, the Saudi Kingdom of Saudi mm. Arabia, uh, we, I th there is probably a, a significant shift a foot uh, in the dynamics there. So we've. Do, we'll, do you think Israeli um, agents, the Israeli security services, were, were green lighted by uh, by the Trump administration to go ahead with this, or do you think there's any relationship between the assassination of this physicist and the release of Kylie Moore Gilbert? Yeah, no, that's it's a good question. We can't be categoric. There's no question in my mind that it's not beyond Israel's capacity to do something like that. They've demonstrated that before. Uh, whether or not there's something internal in Iran that's going on, we can't completely discount as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly in terms of capacity, cap capability, Israel has it. Uh, and... Uh, the, the dynamics would point to that being a likely uh, a likely prospect. In your judgment, would they have waited or been asked to wait for the playing out of this other process to secure the release of Kylie Moore Gilbert? I guess I guess we can't know the answer to this. No, but, no, but we won't. It, no, one, it, no one's going to tell us. No. Uh, but in terms of just you know working through the pro the probabilities. Um, we have diplomatic representation in Israel. We have diplomatic representation in Saudi Arabia and in Iran. Um, so, unlike the US, unlike the US, um, so we are in a position for those embassies to be coordinating with each other mm. through the diplomatic secure communications network to make sure that their messages are consistent and that their actions are coordinated. So that is plausible, uh, and it would be. Uh, it would be unprofessional if they hadn't been looking to f fend off any kind of disruptions to what has demonstrably been a considerable investment mm. in making sure that that release happens. Mm. So very interesting to see Nick Warner play a role, yes. the Director General of the Office of National Intelligence, the peak uh, intelligence policy uh, at, at 
intelligence analysis and oversight uh, position, uh, you know, the head of basically the head of Australia's national intelligence. It's a, he's been playing a role, having formerly been in, in ASIS as head of ASIS beforehand, very, and former diplomat in, in the rest of the other part of DFAT beforehand, very well placed to, to, to play, to capitalize on his network. Very interesting to say, to see our relationship with Thailand played in this space. Mm. This is Thailand, because I've got a, close connection with Thailand, uh, um, having lived there for a number of years. Um, but Thailand's one of these kind of underappreciated second-tier nations for Australia. It's not um, you know, an immediate neighbour, but it's been a very important partner for us over the years in crisis resolution. The Cambodian peace crisis, peace resolution of 1992-93, Thailand was pivotal. In East Timor crisis of 99, Thailand was the first country to volunteer to help us, broke the ice, and then others followed. Critical, critical move by Thailand to help us. And here we see Thailand again playing a very critical supporting role to Australia, reflecting an investment in the bilateral relationship going back generations. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got a book coming out any day now with ANU Press, Niche Wars on Australia in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, I, I've written that mindful of Australia's military focus in that space, uh, edited that book, I should say, I've written chapters in it. Um, and yet I'm very much more a Southeast Asianist. That's my, that's my, uh, my bigger focus. And I see that Australia's investment in that space matters enormously, but it's not one or the other. Uh, no. Clearly, we need to manage both, and there's an incredible uh, multiple layers of complexity here. In and we're not going to see that uh, really that story unfold very, very clearly for quite some time yet. I'm sure. Well, look, thank you both for uh, what's been a really terrific discussion today. Uh, I've got a list of other questions that I just haven't got to, and I, I feel bad about that. But at the same time, uh, it's just been so interesting discussing the things that we have been discussing, and there's, I guess. Always future podcasts where we can uh, we can go into some of these uh, questions more deeply. So thanks very much to Dr. Siobhan McDonnell and to Professor John Blacksland. Uh, it's been uh, terrific, as as uh, as said. And uh, this is Democracy Sausage, as you know, comes out twice a week from the ANU. So I'll be back later in the week with uh, content as yet undetermined, uh, but I'm sure it'll be interesting. So we look forward to talking to you then. Thank you. Bye for now. 